A new study reports credit card rewards provide a lifeline for working-class Americans. Rewards like cashback empower low-income families to pay for everyday essentials. So why are DC politicians partnering with corporate megastores to end your hard-earned rewards? The Durbin Marshall credit card bill takes billions from American families, lining corporate pockets instead. Tell DC politicians to oppose Durbin Marshall. Learn more at electronicpaymentscoalition.com. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. Coming up on this week's episode, with a packed Democratic presidential field, getting a spot on the debate stage can be a challenge for candidates, so some of them are completely changing their campaign strategies in hopes of securing a spot via new criteria that came out just this year. Plus... Venezuela is a mess, and we're going to get into it this week via a weird, wild Washington embassy takeover. New story in Politico magazine. We have the author in studio. Just a heads up before we get going here, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, May 9th, so everything's up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome in two of Politico's national political reporters, Elena Schneiders here in the studio. Hello, Elena. Hey, Scott. And Chris Catalago. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you? Good, good, good. Thank you for both being here. Here is our first data point, 65,000. That is the number of individual donors that candidates need to get in order to qualify for the debate stage uh, under new criteria from the Democratic National Committee, which is running the Democratic debate process. Uh, That's a a new piece of criteria this year. We've seen some other uh, ones in the past about polling, this and that. But Elena, you had a story this week about uh, the some of the consternation that this new uh, uh, piece of criteria has has caused among uh, some of the kind of lower tier candidates who you know who not the the Bernie Sanders and Joe Bidens and Kamala Harris's of the world who are raking in that many of donations in a big day. For them, right? But the, the, this is causing some serious stress for other campaigns. It's definitely causing stress. Um, well, but to set this table first, there are two ways to get on the debate stage that, d- that the DNC has set this year, in part in recognition that there are 20 plus candidates who are going to be trying to get on stage. So for June and July, our first two debates, the the 20 candidates are going to be spread out over two nights, 10 candidates on stage. It's going to be uh, really helpful. We'll get a lot of information out of these people. I'm sure it's not going to be a total mess. <laughs> Setting that aside, though. Um, so to get on that debate stage, there are two ways you can do it. One, you can register at 1% in three DNC-approved polls, or you can raise money from 65,000 individual donors from 20 states with 200 donors represented from each of those 20 states. So this was an effort to try and expand the pool of people who could potentially get on that debate stage, recognizing that sometimes, you know, it's not always who is most nationally well known, like, say, Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, who are going to be starting at, you know, 20, 30 percent in the polls because of just simply name recognition. The idea being that this grassroots donor threshold would would take into account candidates who maybe aren't as well known and give them still an opportunity to catch fire online and be represented on the debate stage. So. The complaint, though, and maybe the unintended consequences of this threshold is that at least in the minds of these candidates, so there's about six candidates who are 
qualified for the debate through polling, but haven't qualified through the 65,000 donor threshold. And, and they're concerned that since it's capped at 20, they, they're essentially going to need both, right? Because then the DNC is going to start knocking people out. Exactly. You, it Basically, if, if they're more than 20, then they go through then who doubly qualifies, who's qualified through both lanes as a, as a more sure way to get on the debate stage. And also there's an awareness that the DNC might actually continue to increase those thresholds heading into future debates. And so they may need to hit 90,000 or 100,000 donors going forward. So, so, But the complaint that we hear from these half dozen candidates and their campaigns is that there's a sense that these that this threshold, which has never existed before, normally the DNC has only ever used polling as a way to get on the debate stage, that by prioritizing fundraising and by prioritizing focusing on national fundraising, that it takes away from building an infrastructure in these early states, from going living room by living room and introducing yourself and and sort of building a classic Iowa, New Hampshire uh, strategy. And instead, they have to spend a lot on Facebook ads begging people to give them $1 or or promising a free bumper sticker if you give $2 to their campaigns. Doesn't sound free. Yeah, well, (laughs) um, I don't know the going rate of bumper stickers at the moment. But Either way, this is this is a complaint that I have heard from a number of campaigns that we sort of drilled down into sort of what these how these rules were changing the way that campaigns were running their races and how the prioritize how how the priorities had really shifted in 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 an environment in which we've never seen something like this before. I want to jump into some of the specific ways that the campaigns have changed in, in a second, but just br- bring in Chris and uh, and you can answer this as well, Elena. I mean the 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 pushback on on some of these complaints, right? is that the idea that in 2019 that you can run kind of a a late 20th century style campaign of just like digging in deep into Iowa and New Hampshire and just kind of chugging away. And then eventually you you make this moment to yourself. We had, you had folks like Howard Dean, who who ran kind of the first internet driven presidential campaign and Patty Solis Doyle, who ran Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign saying it's like that's, that's not the world we live in anymore. Like right. these criteria are just making uh, making known the fact that like that that's not that that's not a, a thing anymore. You have to kind of appeal nationally to some extent. Yeah, and I think Kamala Harris has been one of those people who's done one of the best jobs of doing that. Yeah, and I think part of it is is trying to find a a marker or a way to gauge like grassroots support, right? And you want to be able to to show that um, that these folks have some le- you know mm-hmm. you know floor level of support out there and I guess this is this is kind of the best way that they came about doing it the thing that's like struck me the most about it is you know we see in senate races we see in some of these other races that people have built up the digital side have done a bunch of ads and have been able to to build up the small dollar fundraising bases but um candidates like cory booker is a perfect example for me he's been on the national scene for so long and the fact that he struggled so much to hit that benchmark even though he is you know fairly nationally known Mm -hmm. and and you compare him with Kamala Harris and they invested several million dollars in building that out over the last couple years she's obviously been a senator for um, uh, several years uh, less than he has Um, so it it is kind of it does kind of reward the folks that have made that investment earlier on and I think it might surprise people who are among those who haven't actually reached that threshold I mean it's governors and senators it's Kirsten Gillibrand it's Jay Inslee it's John Hickenlooper people who again like you said who who aren't necessarily 
nationally known, but certainly have bases and have build, been building campaigns and investing in this for quite some time, some more than others. Uh, but it is still it's it's concerning. And I think that, you know, part of these complaints is also if you sort of flip the coin on it there, it's also an awareness of a real weakness. It's fu- it's funny just going back. I can't remember before for one of the stories you wrote about uh, this process a, a while back. We we went back and looked at some of the the stories about like the first Democratic debate in 1988 or something. And this was just never uh, th- there was never an, an issue of having this type of criteria because there weren't that many like candidates who could credibly claim to be real. But I guess part of the the issue is that the DNC doesn't want to be in the business of sa- of like picking and choosing. Oh, this candidate can be in. This candidate isn't. So they set up these criteria in order to to try and and make sure that they had the least role of like putting a thumb on the scale basically after 2016. Well, I think that they're they've got two competing uh, priorities that they have to contend with. On the one hand, they want to repair and and not repeat the mistakes of 2016 when they came under a lot of fire for the way that they handled the debates, limiting the number of debates, putting them on Saturdays when people weren't watching them, seeming to give the advantage to Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders and a lot of and, and Martin O'Malley in in these debates sort of weighing them for the more establishment candidate. So they want to avoid de- the, any appearance in, of, of repeating that mistake, but at the same time, this awareness that they have to winnow the field. You can't have a productive conversation with 10 people on stage. There's absolutely no way that people are going to get a better sense of these candidates when they only get 20 seconds to say something. Yeah, and the irony to me is everyone's focused so much on these small dollar donors, and now you're seeing sort of uh, a quarter and a half into it. It's almost like there's going to be, a, once, we, once folks either do or don't meet the debate threshold, a pivot back to the traditional donors because they're saying, you know, this is where I need to really raise enough money to like compete in this race. So it's like it's almost kind of sidetracked them to be to have to do this and do these Facebook ads and kind of meet that early threshold. And and then you're seeing a pivot away to, to these traditional fundraisers. Well, and that that was what some people told you for your story, right, Elena? That there was this sense that uh, oh, you know, they had campaign plans and the criteria came out early. So it's not like the, the, this came out last week and all of a right. sudden campaigns were were having to do a massive shift. But but that there was in terms of these long term campaign plans, there are some people who think it's like, look, the, the goal you get in and you want to do really well in, in Iowa. Right. That's the first contest. But then there's this kind of side thing that's popped up that they've had to that they've had to devote energy and, and finite resources to. Right. It's created another hurdle that they have to jump before they even get to Iowa. And I think for some, that has both been an opportunity. I mean, look, Andrew Yang is going to be on the debate stage, and he's not somebody who who has been an elected f- official before, but he's somebody who's caught, been able to, to catch fire online, and he's going to be able to get up on stage and make his case. But I think for other more traditional paint-by-numbers, conventional presidential runs, this really threw a curveball into their planning, and it's forced them to to really turn to donors and make a, a pretty naked ask and basically begging people. You know, we've even seen people like, you know, John Hickenlooper sent out a fundraising pitch the other week the other week saying basically, well, we're at risk for not being on the debate stage. Well, that's not totally honest. You are on the debate stage probably because of polling, but there's an awareness that if he doesn't reach this donor threshold that this is going to be an issue. And another complaint that I heard was that you know, if we we being, you know, sort of if I'm voicing the campaign here, if we keep going back to these small dollar donors and keep asking them and begging them to make sure that Julian Castro's Latino perspective, being the only Latino in the race, has to be on the debate stage, even if you're not supporting him as a candidate, you have to you know support him to get on the debate stage. That's a stressful experience for these donors. It's putting a lot of pressure on them to keep giving mm. so that the people that even if they're not ready to back Cory Booker, they want to see Cory Booker on stage. And um, that can put 
I don't know, it could potentially strain this this relationship that they have. And and we don't know what the consequences might be for these campaigns if they keep sort of treating these donors um, as their sort of emergency fund. Mm-hmm. And it's a very lucrative and important relationship with small dollar donors. Exactly. In the Democratic Party right now. Chris, I want to I want to uh, segue into um, uh, an- another story this week that 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 you were ex- exploring. You're, you're covering Kamala Harris. Um, she just had a weekend in uh, the Midwest. And I'd like you to tell us what happened there and what she was talking about. Yeah. So she had kind of a twofold message uh, that was new as part of her stump speech. The first part of it uh, focused and really kind of going hard after Trump, harder than she has in the past. And a lot of people see that as sort of a recognition that Joe Biden is uh, has come out of the gate with uh, you know attacks on on Trump and Charlottesville and a bunch of other issues and so we saw Kamala Harris talk about um, all kinds of uh, current in the news things like the burning of uh, black churches in Louisiana and um, and basically saying that Trump's response is like nowhere near where it needs to be that the Justice Department needs to be beefed up um, and then the second piece of it was this electability question. Um, that a lot of people think is hanging over the race, particularly mm-hmm. in in the in the Midwest. And um, this is something that her advisors have talked about for for several months now. That um, people should be writing stories about uh, it, not just being sort of a hunt for converting folks who may have voted for Barack Obama and then Donald Trump. Uh, we've kind of known them now as sort of these white working class folks um, in the Rust Belt. Uh, this this should also uh, be a debate about who could turn out. Um, you know, part of the Obama coalition from 08, which is uh, uh, voters of color and, and, and women and, of course, suburban women come into that discussion as well, which we saw in the, in the midterms. And so her uh, point in that was to say um, not sort of this purely naked electoral argument, which is like, uh, you know, in a sense, a self-serving one that, that these are folks who would vote uh, potentially vote for me, but saying that these these people out there should be part of the discussion, that they're being ignored essentially by the pundit class and that everyone's talking about the folks at the diner that voted for Donald Trump and that the discussion should really be broadened. And I think what they saw was over a couple months of her advisors and other people talking about that, it wasn't really breaking through. We didn't see it as much in sort of the cable news chatter. And so they really sort of turned to the candidate to make that case at this uh big NAACP gala in Detroit. And, um, you know, just over the last few days, I think it has had some impact in terms of the discussion um, about her campaign and about whether we should be talking about um, all of the uh, potential voters in the primary and the general election. It's really interesting watching over the over the last uh, few weeks. I mean, really, since Joe Biden got in the race. There's been a lot of talk about electability and what that means. And it seems certainly from public polling, it seems like a lot of uh, people who are supporting Biden are doing it because they think that he uh, has the best chance to beat Trump, that he's the most electable. But why that is unclear. I mean, he certainly he does he does well in in head to head polling matchups, but so so do a number of other candidates, and I think that there's this uh, there's a, a criticism that's formed about this that that there the basically electability is code for for like for non controversial for a white guy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I and I think that you know look there's there's certainly the the argument of record and uh, and how candidates have performed in the past, and the female candidates have not lost 
races and all of the male candidates have. And look, that's not like a, that's that's uh, that's not a uh, causal relationship necessarily. But I think it's it's something to to look at in terms of this question of electability. And is it more a, a conversation about who people are comfortable seeing in that role who think who 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 feel like they that they, that's a matchup that they could envision versus the, the, the pitch that I think people like Kamala Harris and other female candidates, non-white candidates are trying to make, which is let's be more imaginative about what that actually could look like. And just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it won't. And it's, I mean, it's not hard to, to envision like that there are a lot of different paths through the presidential race, right? Uh, Trump won Wisconsin by 0.6 percentage points, Michigan by 0.2 uh, Pennsylvania by about 0.5, Florida by 1.2. I mean, right? Like we're not we're not talking. There, it seems like you you could figure a, a few different ways uh, uh, through to to make up a few of those deficits, right? Yeah, there's no question. And, and you look at the the Sun Belt path as well, which is something that I know Julian Castro has talked a lot about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beto O'Rourke as well. And I think the thing that I wonder is sort of like how do they get to that stage, right? These are people who are making a claim. Harris in particular, who, you know, you come off the bar hearings and her, and the big sort of focus of her campaign is like, wouldn't you want to see her on the debate stage with Trump? But then they're looking at, you know, Joe Biden, who's sitting at 40 percent. And 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 I think what they've come to the conclusion um, uh, of is basically that that, you know, in order for someone to envision you on the debate stage with Trump, you need to take him on a lot more forcefully and, and speak uh, less in sort of these roundabout ways and, and just sort of really go after him. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot more of that from Beto O'Rourke as well. He's he's really stepped up his criticism of Donald Trump. And so I, I'm just curious to see, you know, yesterday or a couple of days ago, I saw an interview with Cory Booker where he seemed a lot more forceful in his critiques of Trump than he had with the love message before. So that seems to be one of the impacts of Biden getting in uh, before they can even get to that debate about what states they might be able to win in a general election. That's really interesting. Elena, is this calling back any, I, I feel like you you spent a lot of time probing in 2018 the extent to which candidates running for the House of Representatives were, or in most cases were not, talking about Trump uh, because they kind of figured that, that, that those feelings were just baked into what, what people thought. There was nothing they could do to change people's minds or get people more or less animated about the president. So they talked about other things. But And, and I feel like a lot of those people took a lot of lessons from that. But at the same time, they're running... To, these presidential candidates are running to run against Trump. They're not just running in a, in a House district somewhere. Well, and I think, too, there there is a marked shift that happened between House candidates running in a primary and House candidates running in a general election. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's something that we sometimes can sort of forget in the swirl of the nonstop campaign, that there are different phases to this. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a real shift when House candidates went from who can stand up, you know, who can take on the generic Republican, who can stand up to the Trump administration. That happened a lot. And, and it wasn't maybe in their paid messaging and their advertisements, but it was certainly something they talked about a lot on the trail and with voters. And there was a turn when it came around to the general election, when it was much more focused. You know, we did a lot of reporting on how often Donald Trump was mentioned in TV ads. There was a marked drop from 2016 to 2018, and they focused on health care. So I think that we are bound to see a similar shift happen once these presidential candidates pivot from the primary to the general election. The other yeah, the other thing I think they're doing right now is they're they're not so much kind of it may not be talking about Trump to make a case to convert a Trump voter. It's talking about Trump 
uh, talking about all these ways in which he's, you know, in their words, destroyed democracy to really rally folks that should be supporting them and kind of raise the level of like importance that this election is going to have. And so it, a lot of it is sort of a rah-rah turnout, you know, who they see as their base um, more so and, and more so than it might be, um, you know, a, a, a way to convert. Right. And the, taking people on and on in, in sort of the, the language of MSNBC, sort of the like, let's 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 go after the president. That is red meat for for these Democratic primary voters, and that is what's going to draw headlines to them, draw attention to them on social media, and and I'm sure is what they're hoping is going to break through. And and even you know take someone like um, Pete Buttigieg. I mean, part of what he broke through wasn't necessarily directly going after Donald Trump, but it was calling Mike Pence the por- you know the cheerleader to the porn star presidency, and that was such a an enormous moment in, in showing him his willingness to 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 call out the president for you know who Democrats see him as, and I think that. Other other candidates are taking note, both from Joe Biden and, and also now we're seeing it from Kamala Harris. And yeah, Elizabeth what... Warren's call for impeachment, I think, mm-hmm. is a good yeah. example of that coming out, you know, before almost everybody else in the, in the field. I think that gave her some momentum and certainly something she could fundraise off. Yeah. yeah. You know what this reminds me of? There's been some complaints from Democratic activists recently who uh, about uh, Joe Biden's campaign and his message uh, resembling Hillary Clinton's message from 2016 and it's dredging up a lot of obviously painful <laughs> memories for them. But I guess the key difference, right, is that Hillary Clinton was running as kind of the moral antidote to Donald Trump in a general election, whereas Joe Biden's making that argument to a Democratic primary electorate and that, you know, potentially could see a very, very different uh, outcome there and maybe maybe a shift later on, as as you guys say. All right. Well, hey, thank you both for, for coming in to chat about this. Elena, thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. And Chris, thank you as well. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. So we're going to shift now for our second data point into something we've been following behind the scenes here a little bit at, at the Nerdcast. And it's uh, uh, it's got a little bit of everything. We've got international intrigue. There's a, a big U.S. government uh, uh, component to it. And that's the, the current situation in Venezuela. So here's the, the data point for this segment. 4%. That's the, the current approval rating, according, according to a, a recent poll in Venezuela, for the, the, uh, the current uh, leader, uh, controller of the state, President Nicolas Maduro. 4% approval rating. Not, not good. Terrible. <laughs> uh, we've, got, we've got Politico editorial intern Jesus Rodriguez here to tell us a little bit more about the situation in Venezuela and how that connects back here in D.C. Jesus, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so uh, how, how did Maduro end up here uh, with pretty much no one uh, approving of his uh, of his rule still uh, in control of, you know, the, the organs of the state, especially the security forces, as we've we've learned recently, but but with uh, a, a lot of, of pressure kind of hemming in on that? Yeah, I think to understand the Venezuelan crisis properly, you probably have to go back to 1999, just when Hugo Chavez was elected president. Um and that really just represented a, a turning point in Venezuelan politics and the U.S. role in Latin America as well, because um, after he was elected and he promised to come in and you know have all this democratic reform, he turned out to be more revolutionary than was expected. Um, and around, I would say, 2008, uh, he started talking very militantly about his socialist revolution. Uh, 21st century socialism is what he called it. Um, And now, after his death in 2013, Maduro took reins of the government. Um, And since then, there's been widespread protests. People don't really see him as a legitimate president. he obviously lacks popular support, you know, based on that, just on that figure that mm-hmm. we just heard, but also on the fact that there are massive protests on the streets. People, you talk to any Venezuelan who is in the country and they recognize that um, 
they there's a humanitarian emergency. In fact, that same poll found that a really overwhelming majority of Venezuelans, something like 80%, consider themselves to be living in a genocide. Um, and the way the Maduro got here was a, a number of factors that go back to the Chavez presidency as well, and that's you know economic mismanagement of, of state assets, uh, political repression, persecution of media, political prisoners, uh, and really just the capturing of almost every single branch of the state, right, mm-hmm. including you know, judicial powers, the electoral uh, commission that oversees elections, um, and just really taking control over everything that the state apparatus represents. So that long arc that, that you just described basically uh, resulted recently in the United States formally recognizing uh, Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. And uh, then as a result of that, they kicked the uh, uh, representatives of the Maduro government out of the United States who had been at the Venezuelan embassy in, in Georgetown uh, in, in D.C. That's right. So what happened next? April 24th was the last day officially that... Uh, the United States allowed Maduro's representatives to be in the embassy. But prior to that, um, because this there was this imminent you know, expulsion of these diplomats, um, several groups, uh, one of them is Code Pink, a uh, you know, notable anti-U.S. intervention, anti-war group, um, approached the Maduro diplomats and basically said, hey, how can we help? We've heard that the United States is going to no longer recognize um, Maduro's diplomats here in the United States as having any sort of legitimate functions, and we want to be able to help uh, because we essentially because we oppose U.S. intervention. They they saw this as part of a march to war, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And, you know, Trump has repeatedly noted that, you know, all options are on the table when it comes to Venezuela, including possibly a military option. We're not really sure what that is going to look like. There are some U.S. officials who say that um, that is more designed to sort of rattle Maduro. Um, but that sort of talk, that hawkish kind of talk still continues. And the U.S. has imposed sanctions on Venezuela. So amidst all this, so Code Pink and some other groups, they approach the, the Maduro diplomats as they're on their way out of the country. And and basically from the story you wrote, the, the, the Maduro diplomats essentially handed over the keys to the, the embassy to uh, occupiers. Yeah, essentially that was... I think that was sort of a last act of resistance that the Maduro diplomats saw, um, you know, before they had to, you know, effectively seize their diplomatic functions in the United States. So there are some 50 Americans who are part of a, a collective of groups, and that includes Code Pink, Anti-Coalition, Popular Resistance, and the Black Alliance for Peace. These are all sort of anti-imperialist, anti-U.S. intervention uh, leftist groups um, who have essentially taken up space and taken up uh, um, residence in the embassy, essentially. You know, mm-hmm. they, they live there, they cook there, they, you know, Skype with the Venezuelan foreign minister who has the Maduro-appointed foreign minister who has voiced his support for them. Um, they watch Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> and so for the past for the past three weeks, about almost about a month uh, now, they've been living in, in, the, in the embassy. And last week when... Um, the U.S. recognized President Juan Guaido took sort of a decisive step to try to oust the Nicolas Maduro government, um, and that was by sort of staging a military uprising that ended up not ended up floundering. Um, Venezuelans have also tried to take over the embassy um, in Georgetown. So the 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 protesters occupying have spawned now a, a 
protest against them, I mean, counter protest, I suppose, right. from, from Venezuelans who support Guaido. From ac- yes, from actual Venezuelans in the DMV uh-huh. uh, area who, you know, That's support District Guaido. of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia, for That's those of right. you who are not in the DMV area. Yeah. <laughs> um, who support uh, who support Guaido. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what's happening there now? I mean, you, you, for Politico magazine, you were, you were out there. You were talking to, to folks. So what's the, what's the scene? Yeah. So, and, and granted, we should say that it's we're taping this again a little bit before noon on May 9th. So, who knows right. what, what happens? That's next. right. So, by the time this airs, actually, you know, the, it as it may turn out, the protesters might not even be there anymore. The because um, what essentially happened is the Venezuelan protesters have demanded the State Department that these people who are inside the embassy be evicted uh, from the premises because they see this as an illegal occupation of sovereign territory belonging to Venezuela. Except the big question is, who is that? Who is Venezuela right right, now? Right, (laughs) exactly. Who who is a legitimate representative of Venezuela in the United States? Because the Maduro's diplomats have been expelled. Um, But at the same time, Juan Guaido's government has appointed his own ambassador to the United States, Carlos Vecchio, who is recognized by the Trump administration as the legitimate ambassador of Venezuela. Code Pink protesters say, or the Embassy Protection Collective says, that under international law, the premises of an embassy are inviolable, which essentially means that, you know, law enforcement can't just sweep in and evict these protesters. Except the view of the State Department is that with the consent of the government of that country, they can do that. And Mm -hmm. The State Department recognizes Carlos Vecchio as the representative of Juan Guaido's government. As opposed to the people who gave the key cards to these protesters exactly, on their way out. Exactly. And so by the time this airs, you know, the U.S. Secret Service or other law diplomatic security service, other law enforcement might already um, have gone in and, you know, expelled these protesters. And in fact, what Vecchio's representatives have done essentially is asked the, the State Department to uh, cut off any sort of electricity to the building. And so the protesters are inside. Uh, they don't really have access to food because Venezuelan protesters are um, blocking the entrances to the building. Mm. They don't have electric- electricity. Um, I think they also don't have access to water. Water was cut off from them. Um, so it's it seems like it's a matter of time mm-hmm. until these pro- protesters are, you know, leave the building. Where are things going on the ground in Venezuela? At this point, and 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 what what are things looking like over the next weeks, months, who knows? As as this power struggle continues, it's really hard to tell because in January, when Juan Guaido proclaimed himself the president of Venezuela, based on a constitutional provision um, that essentially says that when the presidency is vacant, and in the view of the National Assembly over which Juan Guaido presides, the presidency is vacant because the elections through which mm-hmm. Maduro was elected were null and void. Um, so essentially he takes this measure in January where he declares himself the interim president. Um, and since then, it's it's been five months and we haven't seen a lot of um, change for the average Venezuelan, right? So last week, as I was mentioning, um, he tried to sort of take that final sort of like ultimate step in ousting Maduro from the presidency and that was calling for um, a military uprising and calling on military officers to um, get on the side of the, what he sees as, you know, the side of the Venezuelan people, his side, um, and, you know, essentially try to take over the presidential palace. Um, Not many military officers, you know, came to his support. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of Venezuelans did come out on the street um, 
and that essentially curtailed his ability to take on the presidential palace because not not that many um he very much overestimated the number of military officers who would get on his side mm-hmm. on that day. And yeah, I mean, w- without the security services on your side, it's very difficult. To, you need a lot of people uh, exactly. to, to be marching in the streets exactly. to be able to take over the the, the people with the guns. And exactly. So here we so are. There is not a clear panorama right now in Venezuela where uh, this leads to a clear-cut, you know, possibly not peaceful resolution. Mm -hmm. Venezuelan experts have said that um, Juan Guaido has the authority to call for um, a foreign intervention in the country um, and get, you know, possibly a multilateral coalition of governments who want to take some sort of military action. Um, He has not taken that step yet. It would obviously be a very, um, we would go into uncharted waters in that moment because it's not it's not a war. It's a humanitarian emergency. Mm. Um, and this would possibly, you know, it, it could go either way. Um, and that's where we get back to why these why these protesters have, have occupied the embassy in the first place. That's exactly what they're worried about. Exactly. Exactly. They don't want um, they don't want the Trump administration to sort of, you know, make good on that. You know, all options are on the table and, you know, say that we are going to go to war. And in fact, the Washington Post reported um, recently that Trump himself might not even want to do that either. Um, that, you know, he ran on this campaign promise of, you know, that the fact that Iraq was a mistake and, you know, wanted to pull the United States out of wars. And here he is sort of feeling like he's being led to another war by his uh, closest allies. And that those are, you know, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, National Security Advisor John Bolton, and uh, the Special Envoy for Venezuela, Ayla Abrams. Got it. Well, Jesus, complicated situation. Thank you so much for, for helping us untangle it a little bit. Thank you for having me. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. We are going to turn things over to one of those listeners to read the credits. Ryan Eck, serving with the Navy in Afghanistan, is going to read the credits this week. Take it away, Ryan. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks, Ryan. Listeners, if you are a Nerdcast fan who would like to read the credits, please shoot us an email at nerdcast at politico.com. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Do, 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 do